We want to invite you now to turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus as we read, and the book of Nehemiah as well. We'll be reading from chapter 3 in the book of Exodus about a man named Moses, and the book of Nehemiah, you'll turn there to the very first chapter, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1. The book of Exodus, called as such because it is a chronicle of the nation of Israel who was in bondage under Pharaoh, enslaved, and God, by his hand, takes them out of Egypt. It is the Passover, which is the greatest uh, event in the Jewish mind of all of the things that happened in the Old Testament to the Jew. It is the Exodus. It is the, it is the Passover of God's hand humbling the Egyptians and bringing the nation out of Egypt. And so we look at Exodus chapter three, verses seven through ten, and then we will flip to the book of Nehemiah. Exodus chapter three, verse seven through ten. A little bit of background here. The Lord said, it says in Exodus three seven. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hevite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. is a book chronicling the man Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the king of Persia. His name was Artaxerxes, and he leads the people back to rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, it reads this way. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it happened in the month of Chislev, or the twelfth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, the Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. Let's bow in a word of prayer together as we look to the word and hear what God would have to say. Our Father, we pray that you would illumine our minds once again. A grant to us understanding. For you are the one who helps us by your spirit to understand your word. I pray, Father, that you would help me to divide it correctly. We might be faithful and true. 
For we desire, Lord, to know you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I don't know if you've been following the news, but in the news in recent months, almost for a whole year, the political campaign trail and the road to the White House is top and front in our news. Various people, Democrats and Republicans on either side, are trying to win their party's nomination. And in January, we'll have a good indication as to who's going to win their party nomination who will, of course, be the front runners in each party. Likewise, likewise, we too are talking about leadership in our own church. Those of you who are members have received a nomination form as we've, as we've distributed them. Nominations we're looking at for elders, deacons, and also in trustees. And I thought it would be good this morning to talk about the subject of leadership. I'd read a story before about a particular church, a true story. And this church was a real mess. This church was a real mess. In fact, the church was rather empty. And it had a long sanctuary. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those churches that has a long sanctuary. I remember doing a wedding in a church that had a long sanctuary. It was so long that, you know, when we were rehearsing, you had to use a uh, you know, two-way radio so you could tell the bridesmaids when to come up. It was such a long church. And this particular church had hardly anybody all the way back to the back three rows of the church way down there and the, and the pulpit was down there and so this pastor came in and he was a good man a good Bible teaching pastor he decided what he was going to do he brought the pulpit all the way back down to the last three rows and there he stood and he began to teach the word of God and began to help people to grow in the Lord and, and he was a good man and over time the church began to grow and he began to move the pulpit back, farther back and farther back, back until he was back up to where he was supposed to be. In fact, it was so far back. It was back until his back was to the choir loft and the choir was right behind him and this place would pack out. Well, he, of course, the people of that community were rather, uh, uh, oh, I don't know how, uh, you know, sort of a debating type or sort of uh, took him to the wall sometimes. But he faithfully ministered the word of God and he was somewhat bruised sometimes and bloodied by some of the arguments that would happen. But God was good. God was good and blessed the ministry that he was in. And God opened the doors for him and graciously lifted him out of that situation. And he's, he was the last I read was a president of a particular uh, seminary or Bible school. He was followed, though, by another pastor. This pastor was a brilliant man. He had two doctoral degrees. He had experience. He had traveled the world. He was a military officer, too. So he was a fighter. And... He would debate with people and began, of course, to, you know, debate and fight back with those that were a little bit more pugilistic. To fight the fights and battle the battles that were there and so on and so forth to such a degree that they became very heated arguments, very serious arguments. Their arguments were so serious that over time he had to hire policemen and guards to guard who would play the instruments. And who would guard the doors too to make sure that only certain people would be permitted to go out and come on in. And weeks went on and one battle after another would happen. And soon after the place began to empty. And last you know there's only a few cars that were in the parking lot. 
Having the right leader or godly leaders are essential. No matter what they're leading, it's important, especially in the church. So when we look at the subject of Christian leadership, we look at the subject of church leadership even, it's not all about technique or style. There are many books. You go into a Christian bookstore, there are various things about, you know, be like Jesus, the CEO, or various things. The techniques talks about various ways to, you know, convince people to do particular things, methodologies, systems. That's not what Christian leadership is about. It's not about accomplishments either when people nominate leaders or elect leaders. It's not about accomplishments in the Christian church. It's not about a person's seminary education. It's not about their knowledge. People aren't to be elected into a church because of their popularity or their socioeconomic status, i.e. they're popular in the community. We should have them as somebody who's on the board. It's not because of their age. It's not because they're heavily involved in the church either. Not because of their life experience or they've been here since the beginning of time and they're, 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 you know, one of these people who have been here forever. It's not all about that. When you look at the scriptures and you ask yourself, how do the scriptures evaluate somebody who is to be a leader, especially in the church? It's all about character. It's all about the issue of character. What is their life like? What is their character like? How, how do they conduct themselves? How do they live their life? So when you look at the book of 1 Timothy, you look at 1 Timothy 3 and you look at the qualifications for an elder, what do they talk about? A person must be above reproach. They must be a one-woman man. They must not be this or be like that. It's all about character with the exception of one quality. One quality and that is what? The ability to teach. The ability to teach. To teach the Word of God. And even that has some semblance as to their character quality as being a person who is teachable. And when you look at the qualifications for a deacon, they're all about character, about who a person is. But we're not talking about leadership just in terms of our church leadership today. We're talking about leadership in general. And leadership in general, and as Christian leaders, we're all called to some extent, to some degree, to leadership, to lead others. That's what we're called to. You, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you're called to lead your Sunday school class. If you're called to uh, be a parent, God has blessed you with children, you're a leader in your family. If you're a mother or father, you're going to lead your kids. If you're called to some group, a small group, and you're coordinating that small group, you're called to be a leader. And in some aspects, even in the broadest sense of the term, when Christ tells us in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations, that's a command that's not just for the pastor or for those who are more spiritual. It's a command to all of us. And so each of us is called to be a leader. We're to make disciples. And when we make a disciple, we, we lead somebody to Christ and we help them to grow. We give them roots. We give them a foundation. In some aspect, we're called to be leaders. But many people, when they hear about leadership, they either will shy away from it or they'll gravitate towards it. Some are reluctant to lead and others desire or aspire to leadership. And so that's the two profiles we look at today. Two profiles of two people called to be leaders. One was 
reluctant and almost had to be dragged into it. And we'll see five objections to leadership that people give. And then we'll see somebody who gravitated towards it. And what are the characteristics and the profile of a man named Nehemiah who rose to leadership and he desired to lead when he saw a need. So we look at this passage and we look at the passage in Exodus and we look at a man named Moses and he says to Moses, as you mentioned here, here Israel is in bondage. Israel is in bondage and Moses had fled Egypt and he had fled to the land of Midian where he got married and he was serving as a, as a, uh, as a shepherd to his father-in-law named Jethro. There is shepherding and there in the distance he sees this bush. This bush is burning and this bush is burning but the bush is not being consumed it says there in Exodus chapter 3. And he looks at this bush and he says, oh, oh, uh, what am I to do? And, and, the, and God speaks to him out of the bush. I don't know if God spoke to me out of a bush. You know, I'd probably run because it's, uh, you know, I'm here he takes off his shoes and he can follow and he's serious talking to a bush. And here he comes and God says to him in chapter 3, verse 10, Therefore come now, and he gives Moses this command, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And here begins a dialogue. A dialogue between Moses and God. And Moses here, when Moses is called to this particular position of leadership to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he gives five, five excuses. And we look at these five excuses and we ask ourselves, how do these apply to me? Well, Moses gives the first objection that he has, and there's a list of them in your bulletin. Objection number one that he gives is what I call the credibility excuse. The credibility excuse. Who am I? He says to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. In other words, hey, 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 you're asking me, who who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm just shepherding these sheep here. I'm not famous. I'm not influential. I'm just tending these animals here. And it's been 40 years since I've been out of Egypt. Lord, I'm nobody. What does God say to him? Well, in essence, to summarize it for you, God says, you know what? You're right. You're nobody. You're nobody. You're nobody special in the world's eyes. And that makes you the exact type of person that I can use. Because when all the credit goes to God, then God is most glorified. But if we say to ourselves, I'm somebody. I'm an influential person. I'm a famous figure. Then what? We pat ourselves on the back when things go right. Well, it's because I did such and such But here God wants to use somebody who's a nobody. Paul was one whom God used prior to him becoming a Christian. He was what? Persecuting Christians. And yet God used the Apostle Paul who wrote half of the New Testament, nearly half of the New Testament, to evangelize the unsaved world. The Apostle, the missionary to the Gentiles. And God uses various people, you know. He uses various people who are almost nobodies. When Jesus decided he was going to choose 12 apostles, he didn't go and choose the most well-known rabbis, the most uh, famous Pharisees. What did he choose? He didn't choose any of the religious folk there. 
He chose a, a tax collector named Matthew who was despised. He chose a person who was, a, who was, who was a former terrorist, Simon the Zealot, who would be a part of a group of people who would go around to the Romans and stab them in the back and take out the knife and disappear into the background. He chose a person who was a fisherman, Peter. Boy, person who couldn't even keep his mouth shut when he needed to. And chose these types of people and he used them because what? They were willing and open to following God. They didn't say, well, who am I? I'm just a fisherman. What do I know? In fact, many times he chose these people and their faith was small. Even when Jesus was being led to the cross, all of them disappeared. Some of them, after Jesus died, they went back to fishing. Do you remember? He chose these people to be his twelve. People who were nobodies in the world's eyes, who were perhaps despised. Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 1. Do you remember? God calls Jeremiah, and here's what Jeremiah says in verse 6 of Jeremiah 1. He says, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. Unquote. Now, I certainly couldn't understand that. You know, he feels that he's too young. I remember when I went to preach at a, I was invited to preach at a Korean church. You know, I went in there and introduced myself. Hi, I'm the guest speaker this morning. Oh, you're the pastor? And sat down with me and talked with me a little bit. And then he went up, the head deacon went up to the pulpit and he began to explain for a long time to the congregation how I was really a pastor and why I looked so young and etc., etc. And he went on and on about that sort of thing. Now I could have said the same thing as Jeremiah. Gosh, I, why can't I, I'm a youth. Maybe there's somebody who's older who can do a better job. And you know, I'm sure they have more life experience. You know what? He had, he had, there are all sorts of reasons. But when God calls and God provides and God God's answer to him was certainly what? Certainly, he says to Moses, I will be with you. Because what? Matters not who you are so much as who you are with and you are with God. Objection number two that he gives. He gives not only this this excuse of who am I or this credibility excuse, but he gives an excuse of identity. Identity excuse. Who is he? Moses says, who am I going to say when I tell them, God sent me, God sent me. They say, who is God? And God answers in this very famous reply. He says, I am who I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. All of the people that your ancestors worshipped, I am their God. All of the people that your ancestors revered, uh, all of the people that your ancestors, the God who your ancestors revered, I am their God. Not only you see is God with us, but He is the God who created the universe, who spoke all things into creation, who is mighty and powerful, the God beyond your imagination that your mind can even conceive. So great is the God that is behind you. So great is the God that is behind you. God is God. And sometimes we have a small view of who is behind us and so we're afraid. We're afraid to go and speak for God or to share or to lead because we forget God who is behind us. One time when I was, when I was 19, I think, or, or something like that, I, I had one job. I worked for the Air Pollution Control Agency, you know, and, I, and one thing, when I went out with one of the inspectors, 
were to drive around and do the inspections. And we saw, driving along the highway, there was a group of, 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 of construction workers. Construction workers. And they were sandblast cleaning this, this wall. Huge wall on this huge side of a building. And when you do that, you're supposed to tarp it over, you know, because otherwise all the sand will get into the air and it'll get all over the place. And they're supposed to tarp it over, but they didn't do that. And so we were, we, we saw that they were in violation of a number of, uh, of, of, uh, of laws and all that. So we pulled over. And the guy who's next to me, who's done this a, a million times, much older, he says to me, go out there and tell them to stop. Tell them to, that if they don't stop, you're going to give them a ticket. Here I was, a 19 skinny little guy, you know. I go up there. And there are these guys. And the building is big. Everything's big. Their sandblast machine is big. And construction workers are big. And here I'm, this little guy. Put on a hard hat. Put it on. Go up there. And I'll tell you, I was intimidated. I was so intimidated. I went up there. I can't. I, I must have said, hi. <laughs> That's it. I, I, I didn't say anything. I didn't tell him to stop. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know what to say. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? What am I supposed to say to these guys? Tell them to stop. Well, praise God that the guy who was supposed to actually do it came back up and he told them to stop. He told them to stop their probably wrote them a ticket and all of that. All because I forgot who I was representing. I was forgot I was representing this agency that was to enforce these things. And that is who you remember. You have an identity. Excuse, who is God? God is God who is behind you and He's with you. And so we have, don't object. Moses' third objection. Moses' third objection is the response of the people. The response of the people. Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I have to say? For they may say, in verse 1 of chapter 4, The Lord has not appeared to you. In other words, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? That's what he said. God tells him what? God tells him, well, you take that staff and throw it on the ground. It'll turn into a shape. You put your hand into your cloak and he took it out and it was leprous. God affirmed. God affirmed him. God affirmed him. Moses was afraid of the people not responding, but God affirmed the ministry that he was in. You know, when I was in seminary, there were so many guys who came there, and they were guys, and I'm sure James knows too, they're guys who come to seminary, and they're not quite sure whether or not God will provide or affirm their ministry. They were going to places, maybe even to the mission field, where they knew it was going to be difficult but God affirmed them, providing for them finances, providing for them the affirmation through their studies, providing for them affirmation through their giftedness, providing for them and affirming them and being with them. It didn't matter whether or not people would, would, would affirm them or not. In fact, some people, I remember this one couple came in and they were destined to go and they felt called to go to Lebanon. And I still remember them. They sat there in my class and shared, yes, we're going to Lebanon. And we're preparing because we know and we're preparing for the fact that when we go, we know that we'll likely die. They didn't need the affirmation of the people they were going to go minister to. They felt that they were on a road. God had called them to that road. They didn't rely on the fact that, oh, the Lebanese were going to listen to them. And as you know, there are people who face great persecution in Lebanon. But they were willing to go. It was an objection to them. Fourthly, 
Moses gives a fourth objection, the objection of giftedness. Moses said to the Lord in verse 10 of chapter 4, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, uh, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. You know, if Moses said that, I don't think he's not that uneloquent, if that's a word. In other words, he says, look, Lord, I don't know how to lay pyramid bricks too good. You know, I've never been real smart, God. I've never been able to manage large groups, especially when you're talking about all of those Israelites. And here he was going to perhaps conceive of over a million people that he was going to live. He had this giftedness excuse, this giftedness excuse, which said, I'm not gifted enough. He has a grasshopper type of mentality. You know, I'm just a wimp. God, I'm not gifted enough. You ever hear people say that? I'm not gifted enough. I can't give my testimony well. I'm, oftentimes, it's, I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not like so-and-so. I, I don't want to sing on the worship team. I can't sing as well as so-and-so I heard do this solo. And you know what? We compare ourselves and we say, you know what? I'm just not good enough, Lord. I'm not gifted enough. But God calls people and He what? Uses them as they are. He uses them as they are. And God has a unique purpose for you in the body of Christ. He has a unique place for you. Maybe it's among students or whatnot to stand up and say, I'm going to lead this little group of whatever. Or maybe as a parent, you know what? Nobody goes into uh, becoming a parent and saying to themselves, well, I'm very gifted as a parent. I'll be the perfect parent. No, you all learn. You all learn along the way. Because that's how it is. And we come into this world and God has given to us particular gifts and you, you fit in in a certain way and God uses you to lead others. Even in the book of, uh, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, it talks about various vessels, clean vessels and dirty vessels. Some are used and some, some of you might be round plates and others of you might be the little soy sauce dish. Who knows what you might be, but God has a certain place for you and He's willing to use you if you're clean. God answered to Moses and this is what He said, Who made man's mouth? Who made him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? This is not I, the Lord. Now then go and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. We may not be the most gifted person in the world, But it is those people that God often uses to lead. Fifthly, Moses gives his last excuse or last objection, number five. He says, but he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever thou wilt. In other words, this is the unwillingness excuse. In other words, please, God, send someone else. Send someone else. Lord, I don't want to go. Don't send me to Africa, God. Send this person I don't particularly like in the church who's sitting next to me. (laughs) People are always quick, you see, to volunteer someone else. Volunteer someone else. We often do that. Volunteer somebody else. Oh, you know, God, I'm not as gifted as so-and-so. They're so much older, wiser, better than I am. Or, God, please send so-and-so. I really don't want to do that. You know how many, whatever it might be. And we, we just don't want to. But God calls us to lead our families. God calls us to lead others that we are in contact with. And, and you know what? Being a leader gives you so much opportunity. So much opportunity to touch lives for Christ. Don't look at others and say, I'm not like them. 
In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, God says, Whom shall I send? Isaiah said, Send them. He said, Lord, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. And the question is, what would please God? What would please God? Would it please God if I should lead my family in a way that God desires me to? Yes, that would please God. Would it please God if I took the initiative of my class among my students or whatever, among my peers to say, you know what, we, we, we ought to do this because I, this is the right thing to do and be an influencer rather than influenced be the leader rather than the follower all the time? Would, would, would it be good if I taught that Sunday school class or, or perhaps started that little discipleship group so I could help lead some of the other, other people to have, have stronger roots in Christ? And the answer is yes. We look at a person who's like that, who took the initiative in the book of Nehemiah. So if you turn your Bibles to Nehemiah, there's a Jew named Nehemiah who exemplifies the character of a leader from the very beginning different in his response than Moses. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes, for Persia was the world empire at that time. Jerusalem had its walls broken down and the people were distressed. And the first thing that exemplifies a godly leader is a person who prays. A godly leader prays. And we read that when Nehemiah heard the news, the first thing he did was he didn't call his buddies and say, did you hear about the latest gossip about the news flash in Jerusalem? No. He bowed and he prayed and he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he called upon God, the God of heaven, and he recognizes God as the great and awesome God who preserves his covenant. And he says, God, I need you. That is what a leader does. The leader realizes, you, you see, you, you, you can't solve all the problems. You can't solve all the problems in your, your family's life. You can't solve all the problems at work. You can't solve all the problems in the lives of your kids. Or you can't solve all the problems in the church. But oftentimes we try to do that, don't we? I mean, we see a problem and we do what we can to try and fix it first before asking God. God, help me to fix it. We try to do all of these things and sometimes it comes to the point where we see a problem and we'll even try various things. Becoming manipulative or trying the political means or saying to, my, to, to, to other people, boy, if I get enough people on my side, whatever. I remember years ago, it must have been, I forgot how many years ago, it was over a decade ago, somebody approached me and said, you know what? I'm unhappy about this with uh, this, particular, uh, this particular leader. If we get enough people, I think we start a, a low rumble in the congregation. And that's what people do. They try to do various things rather than going to God and asking God, God, how, well, in what way, what way would I do what pleases you to lead? Nehemiah has a problem and he sees a problem and what he does is he goes to God in prayer. Secondly, a godly leader plans with initiative. Plans with initiative. One day, Nehemiah is going before the king. The king sees that he's sad and the king asks him, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah says, what? Nothing. He prays. He prays and asks of God and then he goes to the king with a plan. He takes the initiative with this plan, and he devises a solution and he asks God to bless and give him wisdom and things like that. You know what? A godly leader needs to plan and take the initiative. 
take the initiative with a solution. With a solution. I mean, it'd be easy if Nehemiah just saw a problem there. And they point out the problem. And he says, well, you know, that's, that's, this is the problem. This is what's wrong. And there are plenty of people. There are plenty of people who find it very easy to see problems in this. That's not good. That's not good either. I don't like that. And, you know, this is all wrong or whatever it is. But oftentimes there are even fewer people who have a solution and say, you know what? There's a problem with that. I think this would be a good solution. There's a problem with that. I think we can do that. But you know what? There are some who just shoot down every idea that comes by. We see a plan, propose a solution, and propose maybe even to be a part of what it is. Nehemiah had a plan. He wasn't a passive type of a leader. He wasn't a reactionary type of a leader. He had a plan. This is what we're going to do. Some people don't take the initiative as leaders. I remember years ago talking with one husband who told me that he leads by letting his system of leadership. is My wife does, does all these things and when she asks, has a question about something, she comes and asks me and I tell her yes or no. And that's not how to... I just don't think that's how to lead. That's not taking the initiative. That's more akin to perhaps laziness than it is to leadership. And you take the initiative to say, this can be done better. Why don't we do this? And you be the one who thinks to improve. And how can we do this or do that? And help our family to grow or help my marriage to grow or help our church to do better and plan and take the initiative. Thirdly, a godly leader is not impulsive. A third godly leader is not impulsive. We see this in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah comes to the walls of Jerusalem. What does he do? He doesn't come and say, I know exactly what the problem is. This, 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 and this needs to be fixed. And, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and I know it all. And I'll tell you what you need to do, etc. He came, and for three days, three days, he didn't say anything. In fact, what did he do? He got up in the middle of the night, took some of his men, and the Bible says that he says not. Verse 11 and 12, he arose in the night, few of men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. A good leader, a godly leader is not impulsive. A good leader assesses the situation and decides what he's going to do later. After he's taken in all of the information that needs to be understood, to understand the situation. And you'll find that sometimes people will do this. They'll offer opinions or offer advice so quickly you wonder if they even understand what the situation is. I remember when I was candidating at a church years ago as well. They sat down and asked me, well, well, where do you want, where are you going to take this church? Where are you going to take this church? And I told them I didn't know. I didn't tell them I didn't know because I had read Nehemiah and I thought it was... I told them I didn't know simply because I had no clue what to tell them. I didn't know. I was just a young gun and I had no idea where to take the church. But here it's part of Nehemiah's wisdom to come and say nothing before he evaluates the situation. Fourthly, a godly leader delegates, Nehemiah 3. Godly leader delegates. What he did to rebuild the walls, he assigned a family next to their house. James's house would be right here next to the wall. He'd say, James, you build this side of the wall. And he'd see George, George, you live next to this side of the wall because they live close to the wall. George, you build this side of the wall. They had a vested interest because, of course, they wanted their family to be protected. So he delegated and the walls were built in a very systematic, organized manner. A wise leader will delegate. 
And that's sometimes tough for people to do, isn't it? Sometimes tough for people to do. You ask them and they feel so bad about asking other people. They decide they're going to do it themselves. And oftentimes what happens is you ask them to lead a particular section and they don't delegate or they don't ask for help. They do it all themselves. And it's such a huge project when you do it all yourself. Then afterwards you feel so frustrated that you had to do it all yourself. And then the next time around you don't want to have anything to do with it ever again. The joy of serving is gone because you've had to labor so hard and you felt bad, oh, they're too busy or they wouldn't want to do this or whatnot. Don't be like that. Delegate. Ask for help. You cannot do everything on your own. So a leader prays. A leader plans and takes initiative. A leader avoids impulsiveness. And a wise leader delegates. A godly leader, fifthly, has courage because of God. Has courage because of God. The work progressed. The work progressed. And Sanballat mocks them. And he says, What are these feeble Jews doing, chapter 4? What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? And one of his buddies, Tobiah, says, well, Even if a fox jumped on that wall, the, the wall will fall down. That's how... That's how Terrible! Their, their, their building project is going. Nehemiah didn't flinch. He had courage. He had courage, took the ridicule. And I'll tell you, in leadership, when you lead, lead others, the people will heckle you. People will make fun of you, perhaps. People will criticize you or pull you down. Whether it's in politics, because as you've watched perhaps some of the debates, they are going to take pot shots at the front runner, saying, oh, so-and-so is whatever. People will feel that it's perhaps their right or whatnot. But a leader has to have courage to continue on, to do what God has called them to do, despite what others think or say. Nehemiah didn't allow his enemies to pull him down, to drag him down. He didn't let the critics get to him. A leader has to be positive and courageous. You never hear of a military commander say to his platoon, saying to his platoon, Look, men, you're all losers. We're all going to die. You don't hear the President of the United States go on television and say, you know what, our economy is shot and this war really was a bad idea. You have leaders who are positive people who are looking and inspiring because they have courage and they say, you know what, we're going to win against all other odds. And Christians can say that because Christians walk with God. People who walk with God believe God is behind them. A godly leader has courage. Sixthly, a godly leader does what is right, does what is right and lives by example. Does what is right and lives by example. The sixth one happened because the Jews, there was a famine in the land. There were the rich Jews and there were the poor Jews. The poor Jews had to borrow money so they could buy food. The poor Jews asked the rich and the rich said, sure, give me a mortgage on your home. Sure, give me a mortgage on your vineyards. They were doing that and soon they ran out of money. The rich were asking then, sure, you have to pay that money somehow. And these poor were beginning to sell their kids into slavery to the rich, to their own people, in order to pay. And Nehemiah continued his work. He continued his work. And leaders will be opposed, but they need to be faithful. There will be a position, sometimes not even by the, the people. 
There'll be satanic opposition. Perhaps there'll be a, a opposition through enemies or whatever it might be. But a leader must be faithful in the work God has called him to do. Nehemiah could have said, you know what? Sure is easier in the king's court. We just turn a blind eye to the needs that 